Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Sportacast. You sounded very sportscaster-like there. I, I don't, was it a take on anybody? But it was very, very sportscastery. We're trying out new things. <laughs> Did you ever know? Are you too young? Do you know Van Earl Wright? No. Oh, you have to Google Van Earl Wright sportscaster when we're done with this. Really we'll good. Oh, I mean, did some crazy stuff before all the shtick that you see on. You know, he, he was like an original, like, give me something different kind of guy. Next week, I'll do my Van Earl Wright introduction. Well, I remember we were watching a buddy of mine, Adam Lear and I were watching a Ranger game and they showed a guy just in a, in a probably a $5,000 Zenia suit and he had a hat on just like kind of like you're really vying for best dressed fan of the game kind of deal. Right. And <laughs> Van Hill just said something like, nice hat, nice suit, get him out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get that as much anymore. Yeah, well, so let's go from $5,000 Zenia suits to $6.7 billion MLB franchises. Great work by the Sportico team. Kurt Bodenhausen, Peter Schwartz, the great Lev Akabas, uh, gave us our MLB valuations. Yankees up top, $6.75 billion. Quite clear, almost two bill clear of the rival Boston Red Sox. I think these are, Scott, my favorite thing that Sportico does, and, and we do a lot of different things, uh, but the valuations tie in everything that we talk about, the changing media landscape, the value of RSNs, how valuable a stadium is when you own it with the team, sports betting, advertising, sponsorship, all those things kind of get tied into these big tentpole valuations. You mentioned the Yankees, they're $6.7 billion, the most valuable sports franchise in the world. Right now, we did the NFL valuations a little while ago, and the Dallas Cowboys came in just under that. My guess is, Scott, that the Cowboys will be worth more once this new NFL uh, billion-dollar media deals kick well, Evan, in. Hold on. Let me jump in, Evan, because I Go will ahead. tell you. I'm not going to name the person, but a very high-ranking NFL team executive <laughs> took about 10 seconds to email and say, well, these don't include the new deal, do they? <laughs> so He's right. I'm glad yeah. I'm glad you referenced it because yes, there will be some pogo sticking from the NFL clubs because of that new deal. So yes, we're aware of it, but it, it, we just did it from the last valuation. And now that we've done NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA, we can look at the most valuable franchises in the country because unfortunately, no NHL teams are going to crack the top 25. Scott, I was surprised by this. Only half of the top 20 most valuable franchises in the U.S. right now are NFL teams. You have the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, the Cubs, and the Giants from baseball. And then on the basketball side, you have the Knicks, the Warriors, the Lakers, and the Nets. Uh, so again, half of those teams are non-football. I think if you were to expand that down to maybe the top 60, then you'd see essentially every NFL team in, in that set there. But at least at the top, we're seeing a kind of a diversity among the sports uh, which is not something I think a lot of people would have assumed just because the NFL is such a big commercial property relative to the others. Yeah, you touched on it though, and, and we talk about it all the time, and it's one of the things that separates our valuations. We just take a holistic view of the entity. Like We don't think it's right at this point to just value the team. Sure, as we've seen with Steve Cohen's purchase of the New York Mets, is it possible for someone to buy the team and not related real estate? Yes, because the, you know Sterling still owns the real estate across from City Field. 
the regional sports network that's attached to the Mets, SNY, Charter Comcast part owners. Did that take part in the sale? No, it was excluded. That happens. But we are saying more likely than not, looking forward, that these entities are so inextricably linked that if a control sale does happen, that a good number of those related pieces of real estate, media, tech, innovation lab, whatever it may be, will be included as part of sale. One of the things that always comes up in the conversation around the business of baseball is the status of the demographics of its fandom. There's a lot less young people that are getting into baseball. It's something that Rob Manford, the commissioner, is trying to address. At what point do you think, or if ever, do we see kind of that struggle to get new young fans, the churn of fans affect valuations? I know oftentimes they're they're kind of separated in some ways, especially because of the media growth. But do you think at any point we see kind of baseball struggles to attract a younger fans start affecting the valuation of these clubs? If we do see that the efforts are in vain, well, then yes, absolutely. But uh, I don't remember who it was, but someone the other day, and I kept nodding my head in agreement that baseball, in, oh, I think it was Kurt Bodenhausen in, in our first clubhouse. Kurt was talking about how sports betting is tailor-made for baseball. I think it's great for golf, too. You can sit on one hole, bet everybody else because the algorithms are spinning the odds all over the course as everybody takes a shot. The same with baseball. If I can sit there and bet 25 cents, 50 cents, or I know some people might do more, uh, next pitch, ball, strike, you know, foul, pop up, whatever, that's, that will keep people engaged. That's how the youngins want to take in the game, even if they're not sitting in the stands. If, if the game is open or a game's on TV or open on the laptop or, or maybe just a game cast, you don't even have to be watching. But all right, fouled off. Hmm, he threw him a curveball last time. You know what? He's going to swing and miss here. Here's 10 bucks on a strikeout. Yeah, that's the future. That's the future. So if that doesn't work for whatever reason, and that goes for any sport, whether it's the NFL, if you cannot find a way to have the kids uh, touch with some touch point with your sport, the valuations overall will go down. Yes. Speaking of gambling, Scott, there's the biggest sports gambling event of the year is happening right now, March Madness. Uh, as we record this, we are through the Sweet 16, about to start the Elite Eight. Uh, and one thing that jumped out to me watching basketball games last night, UCLA overtime win over Alabama upset. They've been one of the Cinderella's of the tournament. They had to play in the, the play-in game, if you remember, two weeks ago just to get into the, the round of 64 they have a very high profile. We've written a lot about it. Feud right now with Under Armour. You almost don't see the Under Armour logo at all in UCLA games anymore. They've covered it on the jersey with a patch. A lot of the UCLA players are not wearing Under Armour shoes anymore. They're wearing Nike shoes. Nike is, of course, UCLA's next sponsor in a deal that's going to kick in in July. But Scott, ending up being a, a pretty tough time to try to kill this deal if you're Under Armour, seeing the team that you you would have been doing a lot of marketing around celebrate all these upset wins and Under Armour's really not doing anything to capitalize on it. Well, I, I love the lead of the story. It said of the Elite Eight with like seven are Nike and one is covering up the logo. <laughs> that was That's great. Shows you everything you need to know. And playing the role of Eben Novi Williams will be me right now. As of now, uh, the media exposure... Missed out by Under Armour, $12 million. Okay, significant. If this wonderful ride to the finals uh, continues, upwards of $35 million in media exposure that UA will have missed out on. And by the way, you know, uh, I don't watch too many of these games. I mean, you know that. 
Uh, I love the business of it all, but I don't sit down and watch too much of it. Uh, I, I did watch the end when UCLA did not foul. Uh, I, I mean, I know this is a big debate in college basketball, and I know the likes of like 538 and the Harvard sports kids and that, that we enjoy so much have written about this. Come on. And even the, the coach even said the kids bailed me out in overtime. Like normal, normally I'm a foul guy. And it wasn't even like one guy. It was a catch at midcourt, a pet. So many opportunities to foul and not let that tying shot go up. But anyway, I digress. Yes, Under Armour has got to be sitting there saying, wow, this was a, this was a shot. It's a high-profile school. It's a Cinderella run. Um, it'd be sure nice if we could see our logo. But we all know that they've negotiated a new deal with Nike. So that deal starts, what, in July, right? That's coming up soon. Uh, it'll, of course, be perhaps offset by how much UA winds up having to pay Under Armour. Um, but this is why you sign those deals, right? You want high-profile, big-name schools that are going to make noise in the tournament, get on TV, and let everybody see your logo, and they're missing out on it. That's exactly right. And the 15-year, $280 million deal that UCLA and Under Armour did sign back in May 2006 there's now, for folks who don't know the background, there's a lawsuit. Under Armour tried to kill the deal, claiming that you know the, a lot of the, the the contractuals were not delivered during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Under Armour sued, or UCLA sued Under Armour for breach of contract. That's now in LA County Court. We're going to have a hearing on that in a few weeks. Uh, but no question, and, and and the Nike deal, Scott, pays about seven point seven million dollars a year. It's less than half of the valuation of that UCLA Under Armour deal. So whatever the end result is, if, if, if Under Armour ends up paying some kind of set amount, if they lose the lawsuit or if they win the lawsuit, uh, UCLA starting next year will be getting paid a bit less uh, with Nike than they were with Under Armour. And interestingly, at a time when you see fanatics producing t-shirts and hats in record time, like two seconds after something happens, I get an alert on my phone saying, do I want the gear? And they'll have it made and it'll be delivered to me quickly. Um, UA is not producing any product for this run of UCLA. So they're not even capturing whatever market share they can from this little Elite Eight run. I always think it's crazy that winning two games is like gets you a whole, yay, look at us. But all right, I get it. Uh, but explain this to me, I mean, if you can. The, uh, the UA logo is still visible on shorts and sideline apparel, according to our story. Why is that? Yeah, so Under Armour hasn't fully... UCLA hasn't fully covered up all of the Under Armour. The, the the main one that people always see is the one on the shoulder. That one's covered up with a patch that UCLA did, um, kind of solidarity against racism. The one on the shorts, you can still kind of see. You can see it on socks. You can see it on uh, sometimes on the, the rash guard that players are wearing. Essentially, the, the deal is still in place. So UCLA is wearing Under Armour. It's what they're wearing on the court. Um, but you just don't see it as much. And as you said, you mentioned those numbers about the media valuation. That's valuable. You know, you can still, again, you can see it occasionally, but the, the, the real money shot is the one with the, with the logo on the shoulder or the shoes. And again, oh, a lot of these yep. UCLA players are not wearing Under Armour shoes anymore. They're wearing Nike shoes. You got me. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the, the Zion Williamson breaking through his Nike, that proved how valuable that is. But yeah, the, the, the valuable spots are, you know what else in, in, in basketball is pretty valuable? The headband. Does anybody wear headbands? I don't know if anybody there's, on the team wears headbands. There's a UCLA player that actually does wear a headband, and it has the, the Under Armour logo on it. Oh, there you go. But you see, just I'm... don't, Jaquez is his name, but you don't see it as much. Um, and, and another thing about UCLA, Scott, the Pac-12, uh, after you know being criticized all year for having a down year in college basketball again, is proving a lot of doubters wrong. UCLA, Oregon State, USC, all still in the tournament 
as we record this, both Colorado and Oregon had a decent uh, decent start as well. And there's some valuable money that the Pac-12 earns from that. Yeah, for years from now, the way it works, if people don't know, is you earn credits that are paid out over are these six-year periods? Six years. Yeah, okay, so they're paid out over time. So many millions of dollars headed to the Pac-12 down the way. You know what's an easier way? It's so much work to recruit good players, to get a good coach, to get on the court and win basketball games. That seems pretty hard, right? To do that every year is really difficult. Isn't it easier, I would think, to have what I would call, and I, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, in a derisive way. I, I affectionately will term Matt 1T Ishbia a bench warmer. But what were his averages? Two minutes and 24 seconds and six-tenths of a point at Michigan State. But it's so much easier to, I would think, have a guy on your team who gets that kind of minutes, allow him to join the family business, have him to grow it into what is the second largest mortgage company in the United States, have him build a net worth of $13 billion with a B dollars, and then have him say, I had such a good time at Michigan State and thanks, Coach Izzo, and thanks, Sporty Sparty, for, you know, like, popping me on the head when I'm sitting on the bench. <laughs> I'm going to give $32 million to the university because I really had a wonderful time, and it, it was a nice experience for me. Doesn't that seem easier? I mean, if I, it does sound a, nice a, when you, when you put it that way. And this is not fictional. This is not fictional. That is what happened at Michigan State. Take it away. Yeah, it's a great story that that Brendan Coffey did today, and it and it really highlights the, the the relationship, as you said, Scott, between athletics and funding. And and we've said it many times on this podcast: college sports is built off of alumni donations. It varies at different schools, but at a big school like Michigan State, uh, it's a pro, usually around a third of the athletic revenue comes in as these donations. So yes, the reason people donate when they're rich and out of school is because the the sports teams usually meant a lot to them when they were in school. Uh, and, and, and Ishbia is a perfect example of that, a guy who played on the team, who clearly felt as though Michigan, uh, Michigan State Spartan basketball uh, meant something big to him and he wants to give back in the future. So yes, this is the the playbook as it's written for athletic directors around the country. Of course, we should say the company did go public by, of course, SPAC. Um, SPAC. Yeah, and you know, was on his team was the superstar was Mateen Cleaves. I'm sure you remember Mateen Cleaves. I certainly do. And of course, guess who works at United Wholesale Mortgage? Mateen Cleaves. There you along, go. Along with six of Ispia's former teammates. Cleaves is the leadership coach there. He's bringing a very sports and athletic-minded approach to the business world. Uh, it's interesting that you know he, he's taking the mindset uh, of that team, of that sacrifice, of that together, all the things Tom Izzo and other coaches preach, and he brought it to his company. I mean, great results while he was there. Now, obviously, he he didn't have a lot to do with the on-court success, uh, or maybe he did, though. When you listen to him, he says everybody has to do their role and be as good at it as they can. That includes the guy playing you know, whatever two minutes a game, the secretaries in the athletic department, the administrators. He's like, everybody has to do their role. And when he was there... He went to the Sweet 16, he had two Final Fours, and of course, the 2000 national title. That is pretty darn good. Not bad. Not bad at all, Scott. We'll end with these two stories that have a thread, and I'll let you tell uh, the listeners what the thread is. Two things we wrote at the end of last week. 
The first, MSG Entertainment uh, is buying MSG Networks, two of the publicly traded companies uh, that used to be under the, the Madison Square Garden, you know, super umbrella. And then the secondly, Fox Bet or Fox Sports, sorry, uh, is buying an equity stake in Naira Bets, the, the horse race betting platform. Uh, these two things are uh, pretty related. So Scott, tell us why. Uh, tell us why they're connected. Well, you just said, I mean, MSG said the reason for this merger, it's all being driven by the expansion of sports betting. It's easier to get these deals with these companies as one rather than as just brute units. And of course, um, MSG Entertainment is anchored by the building itself, Madison Square Garden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, MSME Network, we know what what those are. And the, uh, the folks on Wall Street, they didn't love it because it was what, six network shares were swapped for one entertainment share on the deal. But it's a bet looking down the road that because of the proliferation of sports betting and uh, mobile betting coming to New York pretty darn soon, right? That's expected. You're the expert in this field. But mobile betting, you're, you're the guy that they're targeting because you live in upper Manhattan. You used to go over the bridge or at least halfway over the George Washington Bridge halfway. to place a bet on your phone because it, it then recognized you as being in New Jersey. Pretty soon, that won't happen. I'm very curious about a little tangent here. We'll get back to this. But what do you think is going to happen to the Jersey handle when mobile betting in New York is okay? Like, oh, it's, there's like it's 750 million last month, something like that, right? How far is it going to drop? Yeah, you can see the, the company that does the geofencing, a company called GeoComply, sometimes they put out data about you know where, you know, heat maps of where they're seeing their betting. There's a lot I can tell you anecdotally. There's a, I'm not the only one who goes over the George Washington Bridge on foot or by bike to gamble. You see it in the, the northern border between New York State and New Jersey. People drive over that border and park it in a, a gas station parking lot or in a supermarket parking lot to pull out uh, their phones. I, I drive over it all the time to go to hockey practice. <laughs> I think you see it Jersey Jersey City. People take the PATH train just to get out, You know, open their phones and go back on a Sunday morning. No question that there is a, there's a bulk of New Jersey uh, sports betting handle that is just New Yorkers who can't gamble at home who are willing to make the trip to New Jersey to do it. But I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, because part of the assume, assumed in this move by MSG Network has to be the belief that legal sports, legal mobile sports betting is coming to New York. And I'm just not as bullish on that. You know, the, th- this deal doesn't work. The, the combining of physical and digital assets for Madison Square Garden doesn't work as a way to leverage sports betting revenue if the only way to gamble in New Jersey is to go to a casino physically and, and put your money down. So we'll see how this works out, but certainly one to watch for sure. Yeah, important to say like MSG Sports Unit is not involved in this. That's the unit that owns the Knicks and the Rangers and, and, and the practice facility, things like that. You you said it right. This What this combines is the live entertainment and the digital media. And you need mobile sports betting in New York to capitalize on the unity of those two things. You're right. So as far as Fox and Naira, you take it away. You wrote the story. I just called you with, with some news about it. You wrote it. Yeah, you, so, you tell, uh, I'm going to take my headphones off now. Go ahead. Tell me it, what this it's is. It's actually an interesting one. So Fox Sports is buying 25% of Naira bets, which is one of the biggest, it may even be the biggest digital horse ret- racing betting platforms. Uh, that was an yeah. option that Fox Sports had in its previous deal in this new deal, which also has a media rights component. Fox Sports also has the option in the future to buy 24.9% of Naira bets. So in the future, Fox could very well own half of the betting platform. Um, But the thing that's interesting about it from a Fox perspective, and and this is what Fox executives told me when we talked about this acquisition, Fox is very much positioning itself as no longer just a purely sports content company, 
They're a sports content and gaming company. That's the way they think about it. Naira Bets just adds to their portfolio of betting products. They now have a stake in a traditional sports book. Scott, that's Foxbet, of course. They have a stake in online poker and online casino games through Poker Stars. And now they have a stake in online thoroughbred racing through Naira Bets. So they're I can't really tell building you. a holistic platform there that encompasses all the popular ways of betting. And I can't tell you, Evan, how much I enjoy the Tillman Fertitta commercials in New Jersey. <laughs> I've seen it's, it's, it's like everything you want <laughs> in a commercial for the, that's a, is that a, that's a like brick and mortar land casino, right? Or no, that's online. It's online. Golden poker? Nugget? Yeah. I, I don't yeah know, it's online poker. I've seen whatever the commercial it is. where he's upset about giving away the money, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's a, just Gold. really, really interesting. I mean, it, yeah, it, everything now is, is going to be sports. If you, if you have live sports and you're broadcasting, the gambling component has to be there. That's why we're seeing such a, a, a value rise in data. Because uh, if you can get official data and you can deliver it faster, there's more value to sports books. Uh, that's why we see things like, like the uh, the younger tennis set. Why is that so valuable? Why do they get great? I wrote this story years ago, and I really didn't realize at the time they were ahead of the game. But all these these online bookmakers want is live action. They want people watching live games because that's what they want to bet on. And I guess with the dearth of it out there or when they get really low, it's computer generated. You see like it's computer tennis. And I don't know if I would bet my hard earned money on sort of computer tennis where it's not really people playing or anything, but people do. So that that's why across the, you got to think time zones. You got to think globally, the younger tennis there, it's played all over the world. You might have a, a tournament in Kuala Lumpur then one in Toronto, something like that. That's why it's so valuable. It spans the globe all times uh, so people can actually have something live to bet on. And I don't know how I got there from talking about MSG and Fox, <laughs> Naira, but darn it, I don't care. That's where I wound up. It made sense to me. Scott, before we go, uh, last week you did your first Clubhouse conversation and Sportico had its first Clubhouse conversation. Give listeners who might be using Clubhouse or might be curious a sense of, of, of what that was like and what our plan may be moving forward. Well, I'm just amazed at like sort of what tech does. Like somebody mentioned on Twitter, wouldn't it be great if like we could hear from, you know, Scott who who started Sportico and Joe Pompliano who started his uh, his newsletter and Adam White who started Front Office Sports. Wouldn't it be great if we could hear from those three uh, about growing audience and how do you do that? And within like 15 minutes, all three of us had seen it and said, I'm in, let's do it. And then we just scheduled it and we had that conversation. It, it was great. The first time I really heard from those guys and got, got a chance to sort of trade the secret sauces and really recognize how we're in one lane. FOS is a different lane. And Joe Pompliano is, is on his Twitter thread lane. Um, it was really, really interesting. And then the other, we just threw it together. You talked about our baseball valuations and how it touches everything. We didn't plan that day to do a clubhouse, but we just woke up and said, you know what? We have such great content out there. And and my Lord, we have the best two guys in the business who know more than anybody else doing it. Why don't we just do a clubhouse? So we threw it out there to Cora Veltman to figure out on her own. And sure enough, she did. And my old friend, Sarah Talalay, uh tuned in. I was happy to see her. Uh, so it was great. I mean, it was just sort of us discussing more business of sports, particularly drilling down deep into how they do valuations for the Major League Baseball team. The Sportico audio empire is expanding. Uh, very excited to see that happen, Scott. Um, I think that wraps it up. You've been listening oh, you to- gonna, Are you going to try and close? Are I'm you going to try and close? Oh, by the way, your, microphone's, your microphone color, yeah, the, the big puffy part, matches the color of your hat. 
little bit distracted. Bright yellow, both. <laughs> Intentional. Uh, <laughs> you have been listening to the Sportacast, the flagship show in the Sportico Podcast Network. He's Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. I'm Eben Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. You can download the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow it at Sportacast. <laughs>